So when you elect somebody who is pro-choice and will support the right to choose abortion, you're probably also electing somebody who's going to be for common sense gun control and who might be for uh, greater access to uh, child care or who might be, uh, you know, for reducing the high cost of drugs. All kinds of issues do turn on on kind of the philosophies of legislators. And I think the most important thing is for us to understand that the only way we win going forward is to establish political power among those who believe as we do. You're absolutely right in talking about the chill that this is causing on medical providers. Um, you know, I talk in the book about a patient I represented in the 90s in Louisiana who had cardiomyopathy, a life-threatening heart condition, became pregnant. Her cardio team would not refer her for an abortion because they said her life was at risk, but it wasn't at a greater than 50% chance of dying. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. For those of you who are new to my podcast, welcome. For those of you who are faithful listeners of Natural MD Radio and wondered where the podcast went, well, I took a little break last year after Hormone Intelligence came out. It was a very intense year. And one, those of you who know me by now know that I'm all about walking my talk. And sometimes we need to hit pause, go within, reset, replenish, and resurface. So that's what I did. And more than that, my grandma always said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, Natural MD Radio wasn't broke, but our healthcare system is, especially when it comes to meeting women's needs. We find ourselves at a time where there is so much information and so many experts, and often we're caught between two worlds, the worlds of wellness and should I listen to, trust, or try that? And the worlds of conventional medicine where we're feeling much the same way. And there are many reasons why we may need conventional medicine, but we also in this community online here together are educated enough to know that there are many intersectional points for women where we are mistreated, overtreated, undertreated, underdiagnosed to the point that it can take a person a woman, uh, five to seven years to get a diagnosis of an autoimmune condition, despite the fact that she's been reporting and suffering with symptoms for years, up to nine years to get a diagnosis of endometriosis, despite reporting years of painful period, digestive problems, painful sex, and other symptoms that can be related to endometriosis. The list goes on from the overuse of cesarean sections and the overuse of hysterectomies to endless areas of fat shaming, body shaming, ageism, sexism, paternalism, even from female doctors and other healthcare providers. On the other hand, do detoxes really work and do we really need them? Can botanicals really help you if you have a variety of symptoms? Do you need to do intermittent fasting? And there are a lot of people out there who are very willing to tell us and sell us information and products that have absolutely no grounding, not only in science, but even in traditional wisdom. So even though my grandma said, it ain't broke, don't fix it, and I didn't need to change Natural MD Radio to a new podcast, it felt time for me now as a woman in her own wisdom years, menopause that is, 
to bring together the decades, now four decades of work that I've done as a home birth traditional midwife, including practicing in an illegal state for many years, my work as an herbalist and a leader in the integrative medicine worlds, and my work as a Yale-trained MD, to the place that I am in my life of wanting to help you to have tools and wisdom and knowledge and ideas and people that you can turn to and trust to get information and guidance, hear insights, hear all the things about politics, our bodies, demystifying and debunking myths, breaking taboos, and bringing us to what I call the new medicine for women. Because it's not like it was in our grandmother's day, where they just went to the doctor and did what the doctor told them. Or in our mother's day, even, where much of that was probably still happening and they didn't have the wide access to information. We have a new medicine now where we do possibly go to the physician and we need to be empowered to know how to get what we need from the medical care system. We do sometimes go to our naturopath or nutritionist or acupuncturist, maybe all in the same week for the same concern. So welcome to a whole new medicine for women, a broader conversation on the things that make us well and keep us well, the things that affect our well-being, and what we can do to really transform those in our lives. And we all know, living in this world, it's far more than just what we eat, although that's important, and how well we sleep, although that's important. There are many aspects that bear on our well-being, and that includes our relationships, our communities, our economics, our safety in the world that we live in, and so many more points. So I am so happy to be here with you for a new weekly podcast called On Health, a podcast for women. And to bring you a very special introductory episode, I actually received a copy of Controlling Women, the authors of which I interviewed three days before Roe versus Wade was overturned. As you listen to me talk with Kitty and Julie, you'll understand why this interview is so timely and why we even bumped up the launch of On Health to bring this to you in a really timely way. Again, I'm so glad you're here. Please make sure to tell your friends, the people in your community that you feel would benefit from listening to these episodes where I'm going to bring you many, many guests and share many insights and ideas and tips and tools and guidance with you. And make sure to continue to follow so that you can get your weekly episodes. And without further ado, I bring you the first episode of On Health. I'm not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. So said the great black lesbian feminist writer, Audre Lorde. I shared this quote recently on my Instagram feed to remind us that there are freedoms, particularly reproductive freedoms that should be guaranteed as human rights, but these freedoms are not available to everyone. In fact, we're at an inflection point in US history where these freedoms are under greater threat than they have been in a very long time. This quote by Audre Lorde also opens the book, Controlling Women, What We Must Do Now to Save Reproductive Freedom, written by my guests today, Catherine Colbert and Julie Kay. This book is an incredible read. As I was saying to Kitty before we started recording, I thought the book was prescient when I got a copy of it in 2021, only to read it and realize my own ignorance on quite the level of concerted effort that has been happening for the past three decades in the judicial system to affect Roe versus Wade, to affect reproductive rights, and as we're going to talk about, possibly many other rights as well. But first, I'd like to introduce my guests. A public interest attorney, journalist, and entrepreneurial leader, Catherine Colbert has been recognized by the National Law Journal as one of the most influential lawyers in America. In 1992, Catherine argued Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the case credited with saving Roe versus Wade. 
as the lead attorney who designed and litigated the landmark case ABC versus Ireland, Julie Kay successfully argued before the European Court of Human Rights that Ireland's ban on life-saving abortion violated her client's human rights. Kay's legal work with the Irish Family Planning Association is credited with playing a vital role in abortion legalization in Ireland. Colbert and Kay have together dedicated decades of their careers to litigating, lobbying, and plotting for the expansion of reproductive rights. In their book, Controlling Women, published in 2021, Colbert and Kay share the firsthand stories of landmark cases as well as heartbreaking dramas from the front lines. These include kidnapping charges against a woman who tried to help a pregnant 13-year-old, the senseless denial of a life-saving abortion for a young mother of two, and relentless efforts to protect those who provide women with essential reproductive health care. As a feminist myself, a women's health care provider, and having been a medication abortion provider, I considered myself relatively knowledgeable about the issues surrounding abortion access. It wasn't until I read Kitty and Julie's book, though, that I realized how little I knew about the concerted behaviors at play in our country's political and judicial systems to unravel and reverse not just women's rights to access to abortion as part of our overall reproductive freedom, but also the bigger risks of reversal of Roe versus Wade on broader social freedoms and the very stature of women and marginalized people in our country. I hope you will listen to this episode, whatever your beliefs on abortion, to understand our judicial system, the history of abortion access in our country, the very real limitations and consequences facing women around the country, and what could happen if or when Roe versus Wade is reversed. Kitty and Julie, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. First, I want to thank you for all of the work that you have done and continue to do, putting yourselves on the front lines of what has at worst been a movement threatened by violence and murder, and at best, a highly stressful, highly polarized, highly public debate. So I'm just so grateful for you and what you do. And I'm very grateful for your time today. Well, thank you. You know, for as far as I'm concerned, the real heroes in all of this are the women who need services and the doctors who provide it. So we're thrilled to uh, be able to talk to a group of doctors. And and frankly, our role is never as important as the uh, providers directly who uh, need to uh, continue to, uh, to provide care to their patients. Oh, I love that. Thank you for always bringing it back to center of who we're really here to serve. And of course, Doctors will hear this, midwives will hear this, and hopefully tens or hundreds of thousands of people who are listening who really don't know, I'm sure, the the depth and extent of what we're really looking at facing and how front and center this issue is. I want to start with both of you, as you brought it to the women who are seeking services. I believe that each of us has an origin story, some experience or exposure or a moment that kind of informs our mission in life. And I'm curious to hear how you tell your story. Of course, I've read your book. It's incredible. But what is it that brought you into abortion activism? And what is it that drives you personally to do this work, which I know is not easy from a personal standpoint, even when it potentially comes to personal safety? So uh, I, I guess I'll go first. I'll let Julie uh, add her story because it's probably more compelling than mine in that uh, I got into this work really accidentally. Uh, I was on my first day of the job at uh, the Women's Law Project, a couple years out of law school. Uh, there was a bill pending in city council. Uh, my, my new colleague said, well, why don't you go represent the clinics? The hearing starts in an hour. I did that. Uh, I uh, managed to kill the bill, uh, which was um, uh, not all that difficult because the head of city council was uh, pro-choice. Uh, but I killed the bill and then became the lawyer for the clinics uh, thereafter uh, for nearly two decades. And um, for me, I think the, the really critical aspect in all of this is a lot like uh, what we talk about in our book. That is, I saw the struggle uh, to prohibit abortion or to restrict abortion as a way to control women and believe very, very clearly that all of our lives are affected 
when uh, women don't have the opportunity to make decisions about kind of the most fundamental parts of their lives, which having children is. And as a, as a lesbian woman who really desperately wanted to have children, to me, the freedom to make decisions about that was really core to who I am. And, and uh, with my partner, we're lucky to have two children. Uh, but in those days, I mean, my, my oldest is 37. So in those days, that was a real rarity. And I think it really highlighted how important these issues really are for me. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here, Aviva. I think this is one of those issues that really is the epicenter of healthcare and gender equity and race equity. And so we're all kind of recognizing how entwined reproductive freedom and access to abortion is with some of these fundamental human rights and some of our most sort of intimate decision-making around when and whether and with whom to have children or not. And I think for me, I was raised in a sort of feminist household. I was in nursery school when Roe v. Wade came into being. And by the time I was in college and I was a women's studies major um, up in you know, a progressive Massachusetts. And I thought, why is this issue still such a thing? And I think it, it was something that I explored actually in writing my college thesis of how do people come to their decision on the abortion issue of which side they're on. And that's the piece that I think I find the most interesting is how we make our own personal decisions and what that says about how we approach the world and what we think is best for others. And when we feel comfortable dictating or not dictating, um, how people make the, those decisions and, and how we have access to health care. Um, one of the reasons that Kitty and I wrote the book was not just because of what's coming down the road for abortion rights, but because, you know, I, I really saw that the kinds of restrictions that have been put on abortion access after Planned Parenthood versus Casey fell very unfairly on people. They really were much more harmful for women who were living in rural areas or for young women or for poor women or women who lacked resources, and disproportionately for women of color who already lacked access to some of the most basic health care and decision-making, not just around pregnancy, but really deeply around pregnancy um, and that kind of living in two different worlds. And so for me, this issue is, it's not the same as it was pre-Roe versus Wade, but it still very much is about those kinds of control issues of what we see as gender stereotypes and as race stereotypes and how they play out through kind of limitations on some of our most basic human rights. I'm super curious about this piece on decision-making. And I know you talk about it some in the book, but this is a bigger conversation. And for me, you know, I didn't realize until I started doing more uh, research into the history of abortion and reproductive rights in this country that it wasn't actually that long ago that, and, and early in our founding history, if you will, that abortion actually was not considered illegal or even amoral. And it's even in relatively recent history, even the Republican Party, a variety of clergy and, and organiza uh, religious organizations were not anti-abortion, did not condemn abortion. So how has this evolved and how does that come to play in people's decision making around abortion rights and abortion access? Look, I think there's a very big gap often between what religious edicts say, what religious hierarchies say, and what people believe within their religion. I lived in Ireland for a number of years where abortion was uh, completely banned. It was there's a clause in the Constitution that equated the life of the mother with the life of the unborn. Um, and yet Ireland had the same rate of abortion as countries where uh, abortion was legal. It just meant that people had to travel, that women went secretly and shamefully to other countries. I, you know, and I often say that it, you know, Ireland was a so-called Catholic country because people's beliefs differ from their own religious hierarchy and religions themselves differ. Uh, many religions place the health and well-being of the mother or the pregnant person as the first and foremost. Um, and that's a, a deeply held religious belief. So the politicization of religion often, I think, is what creates this idea that uh, it's somebody's religious values, that this is a religious dispute or dispute over some great philosophical question of when life begins, when in reality, what 
what we believe and say a lot in the book is that it's about control. It's about controlling other people's behavior. It's about enforcing a gender binary and about choices in childbearing and child rearing. Um, so I don't really buy the religious piece of it, although it's been extremely successful politically for the far right and for the Republican Party to adopt this as a religious framework and to get people to, to vote in a way that we need to start voting to support the right to access this kind of health care. So how did that shift come about in the United States, particularly where suddenly it was sort of the poster child, if you will, issue for the Republican Party and the conservative right, that it wasn't always that way in this country. Women did have the right, may not have been easy to access, but then we saw shifts happen in the 50s, 60s, where it became very difficult. And that's where we kind of have the whole coat hanger image associated with abortion. Well, I actually think the the shift came a little later, uh, right around uh, 1985 during the Ronald Reagan administration with the rise of the moral majority and the realization uh, by Ralph Reed, who was running the moral majority and Jerry Falwell, that uh, they could align with disparate parts of the Republican Party uh, by focusing on uh, anti-abortion views. And they uh, began a concerted effort, not just to uh, activate the religious right, but to bring the religious right into the Republican Party as an institution. And that effort started in, in the 80s and has been very, very successful. And I think the way they did that is to uh, increase the uh, preeminence of the religious argument uh, because it was Catholics and Mormons, particularly Catholics, who'd been Democrats. Uh, and if the the promise could be that uh, they would become Republicans, there'd be a lot more political interest uh, there. Uh, I, I want to go back, though, to a second uh, to what you said earlier, Aviva, about decisional uh, autonomy yeah. and just point out the fact that Roe itself as a, as a, as a Supreme Court decision protected not just bodily integrity or the right to control your body, but decisional autonomy, the ability to make important decisions about your life. And they grounded that in a whole series of cases that began in the you know late 1890s and went all the way through uh, cases involving the right to make decisions about education and about contraception and about um, uh, eventually about abortion. And I think that uh, to me is really important because the Constitution protects both the decision to have an abortion and the decision to carry a pregnancy to term. And while we uh, really, I guess, I think we forget that when Roe goes away, there will not only be no federal constitutional protection for abortion, but no federal constitutional protection to choose to carry the pregnancy to term as well. And that has huge implications for uh, maternity care uh, and a whole range of things that you as doctors do uh, during pregnancy. And I think that's really important. Kitty, can you be more explicit about some of the ways it may also show up in maternity care? Well, let's uh, think about an ectopic pregnancy, for example, mm -hmm. a wanted, ectopic, you know, a wanted pregnancy. The woman is, uh, you know, uh, it's ectopic. It's in the fallopian tubes. Most of the state laws that are on the books and that will be implemented post row uh, will prohibit abortion in that circumstance. Doesn't accept whether the pregnancy is wanted or unwanted. Uh, similarly, wanted pregnancies where there's fetal anomalies, latent pregnancy, there's huge uh, interest in in having access to abortion care. But also the reverse of that, which is uh, the very states that are prohibiting abortion also have outrageous rates of maternal uh, and infant mortality. So when you malign or, or you prohibit women from having abortions in those states, you are actually mandating them to carry a pregnancy to term, often with deadly consequences or severe uh, problems. And uh, I'm sure we could spend the rest of this podcast on a series of other examples about uh, the difficulties with maternity care as a result of the loss of growth. I, I want to point out one fairly you know, high risk sort of tragedy that we've seen happen a lot in other countries where abortion is banned. It 
puts a chill over maternity care and particularly over miscarriage management. So um, for instance, there are a number of documented cases where a woman comes in having a miscarriage of a wanted or planned pregnancy and doctors can still detect a fetal heartbeat and are reluctant to treat uh, the woman. Uh, the case that's very well known is uh, out of Ireland in 2012 is Sabita Halapanavar, who um, doctors heard a fetal heartbeat. The abortion was criminalized. They didn't treat her. They didn't treat her. They didn't take, follow proper protocol. And when they finally decided to give her the care she needed, it was too late and she died from sepsis. And it was a horrible tragedy. Her uh, husband and family were quite public about what had happened and why, and it set off a lot of protests. And then in the past year, we've seen two different women in Poland have similar experiences where they just were not treated in time and sepsis and, and ensued and resulted in their deaths. Um, I think we're looking at that same kind of playing Russian roulette with women's health when you have abortion criminalized. Not that the treating physicians and healthcare providers are necessarily anti-abortion or doing anything other than not wanting to put their own livelihood and licenses at risk or face criminal charges when the laws are not clear and when there's so much, as as you know better than, than we do, the medical decision-making and how to treat somebody when something is a threat to somebody's life, not just their health, so to speak. There are no bright lines. And so it becomes a really dangerous situation for a lot of people. I saw this something on social media where it said something like, no five-year-old girl ever grew up and said, I'm going to have an abortion when I grow up. It's not people's aspiration to do, but it's a life circumstance that so many women do find themselves in. And recently on social media, when Alito's quote unquote leak of of papers came out, I posted a post about what was happening. And I used a coat hanger as a little emblem, um, little illustration saying that I, I don't think we're going to go back to coat hanger days, but it's really important for us to recognize that there are significant physical and emotional risks to lack of abortion and um, for women. What do you consider we're facing in terms of some of the physical and emotional risks outside of the pregnancy issue that you mentioned for women who are unable to access abortion? What do you see women turning to? And and I want to add too that a physician wrote and said, we should let go of the coat hanger image. That's a thing of the past. Women have access to medication and other forms of safe abortion all over the country to which my response was, well, we can air quotes around access, but de facto, not everybody does have access. So what do you see people turning to if they can't access safe and legal abortions? Well, Aviva, let me start just by giving you a sense of the scope of this, because I think we, we say, oh, well, abortion will be banned in some states. Well, abortion will be banned in nearly half the states, probably 25 to 26 states that will run across the south from Georgia west to, to Texas and from the northern Canadian border all the way through the middle uh, mountain states down to the Mexican border. We're talking about 58% of women in, of childbearing age living in a state that either bans abortion or restricts it. Uh, the bans, it's probably about 40% of, of the 700,000 women who have abortions every year. Uh, it's a huge number of people who are affected. We're talking about two or 300,000 people, the size of a small city affected by uh, this ruling. Um, and they uh, will have to do one of three things. They'll have to travel to obtain an abortion procedure uh, or uh, take get or get to a state in which they can take a medication abortion legally. They will otherwise have to find the abortion medication on the black or gray market. Uh, and while that's I'm positive will happen repeatedly. They also, particularly women of color, will risk criminal prosecution uh, in that or for people who help them to do that in some states. Um, and more importantly, uh, a lot of women don't have the ability to travel two to 300 miles uh, to get an abortion because they don't have any money. Um, and so finding the information, where to go, where to stay, how much it costs, really, really burdensome. And think about a 16-year-old uh, kid uh, in Texas 
uh, having to figure that out themselves because if they consult with their parents or they consult with a friend, uh, that friend or parent may be liable under the Texas law. So it's it's bad. Um, I, I don't know how else to put it. And those options are not uh, very attractive in any respect. Women are facing many of these in these states already. There, there have been limitations and particularly to low-income women in rural areas. Um, East Texas and Latino women for a number of years have had a real difficulty accessing care um, because of the you know, anti-immigration fear and bias, as well as just rural areas, as well as lack of health care providers. You know, I think what has been a big shift is that women and groups and allies are starting to take matters more into their own hands. And thankfully, because of medication abortion, they're able to do so more safely than, you know, in our sort of, you know, grandmother's pre-Roe era where we didn't have that option. Um, I've been able to travel and speak with people in the past couple of months, and particularly in the South. There are women who are making, you know, regular trips across the border to Mexico where abortion is legal now and are they're able to buy medication and are getting ready for what they know is coming. And yes, there's a criminal risk. Um, it's a risk that people are willing to take because this is such a major decision um, in life. Um, I've talked to midwives and herbalists who are, you know, willing to put their own safety on the line to help and, and serve women and people who are pregnant because they recognize the significance of this. And, you know, there, there are groups in the South that call themselves abortion freedom fighters. And I think that kind of describes a lot of how we know this is a right, even though the Supreme Court is trying to put the genie back in the bottles, trying to take away the federal floor of the constitutional right. We know this is a fundamental human right, and it's important to step up for others and you know, on the positive side, the blue states, I think, are also really, you know, upping their game to become savior states for a lot of people, a lot of women traveling. New York uh, State's Governor Kathy Hochul is the first, our first female governor, just signed into law a bill uh, last week that has a lot of different provisions to help people who are coming from out of state, including some funding for the abortion funds to help people travel and pay for uh, overnight lodgings, childcare, all those kinds of things. Massachusetts is looking at a similar bill. Um, we're looking at how do we have telemedicine across state lines and how do we expand? I talked to somebody on a college campus and they're looking to get their college university healthcare services to provide medication abortion, which is something they should have already been doing and that they're doing in California. So there's a lot of positive energy out there. There's a lot of recognition that this is an issue that hits people unfairly and that women with resources and, and with money and predominantly, you know, white women will be able to travel the way they did back in the day. Um, but that we've got to really recognize that at least in the short run, this is going to hit people really, really unfairly. And you know, I think the, the reality is also that not everybody will be able to get an abortion. I think the Washington Post just did a story about a teenager in Texas who had twins and she was, you know, unlucky enough to be six weeks pregnant the day uh, on September 1st of 2021 when Texas's SB8 ban went into effect and she never got it together to have an abortion. And it really went into detail of the effect that that has had on her life, her boyfriend's life, the families that are supporting them. And it, it really points to how not being able to control the timing of when one has one's family can really have some, some difficult repercussions. Um, and as you mentioned before, particularly for you know, the fact that more than half the women who are having abortions already have at least one child. And so this is a decision um, and that often affects so many different people's lives and generations. Aviva, I just wanted to, to remind your audience, because I know you, there's a lot of doctors who are on this call, and doctors have the ability, particularly in states where abortion is protected, to uh, prescribe medication abortion. Um, and we have often said uh, flooding the market is very important so that when the friends of, of uh, kids here in, in, the, in, in a safe state uh, find themselves with an unintended pregnancy, they can they can turn to their friend and say, can you get me the 
the drug or do you have that drug? And so one of the things we push in the book is that uh, medication abortion be available on every college campus. Um, and so one of the important. reasons... And right. that, that has been also just a whole other area. Of, and you talk about this in the book, and certainly as a provider, I'm aware of this, um, the misinformation about what can happen if you have a medication abortion, you'll never be able to get pregnant, you'll get, you'll get cancer. And it's, right. it's just myth, 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 and more myth. It's really, I mean, when you look at it statistically, it is actually safer than most in and outpatient procedures many safer than many other medications and certainly safer than carrying a pregnancy. Can you explain what Roe versus Wade is and why it's so important and what we're looking at? So Roe versus Wade was very much a, the court responding to kind of what was already going on in the U.S. We often paint it as sort of the court, you know, charging ahead on abortion rights, but in reality, abortion was already available in New York and Colorado and other states. It was limited. Um, you had to have a sort of reason or an excuse. You had to have access and, and a whole host of other things, but it wasn't the Supreme Court necessarily charging ahead. It was, they were reacting. They were looking at um, the fact that the, you know, the movement was there for this. And so what Roe basically did was set up the trimester framework that we all are kind of familiar with. It was in the first trimester, you could have an abortion for any reason without restriction. By the second trimester, the states could start putting on restrictions, but they had to be to preserve the uh, health or uh, the woman. Um, and you couldn't ban abortion. And then at the point of viability towards the third trimester, the states could ban abortion, but they had to have an exception to protect a woman's health um, and well-being. And, um, you know, when we looked at this now, it seems, you know, that we're getting, we're throwing out all of that when we look at what the Supreme Court is doing now, that there isn't even an exception to preserve the life or health of the mother. And, the abortion decision that was supported in the federal constitutional right to make that decision at the uh, in Roe versus Wade was really sort of entrusted in the woman in consultation with her doctor, who at that era was kind of a white man in a white jacket. And Justice uh, Blackman, who had written the opinion, had been the uh, general counsel for the Mayo Clinic. So he understood doctors, he understood the medical system. And it was very much about protecting that right in a privacy framework. Um, based on the court's rulings around access to contraceptives, access to contraceptives for married people. And it was a good decision. It got us where we needed to be, but it didn't really look at the liberty interests and the equality interests that are so entwined with abortion rights. We're not looking to turn back the clock on that in any way. It kind of it is what it is. It has also been the same framework that has brought us the decriminalization of homosexuality and the right to marriage equality, those kinds of things. But, you know, Roe versus Wade is not a knight in shining armor by any means, but it, it's ours and we need it. <laughs> um, and I think part of where we are now is because there has been such a dependence on Roe. We haven't looked at what other rights, how do we support a movement? I often hear people say that younger women take that right for granted or they don't understand. And I feel like it's not necessarily fair because it's a human right. It's an entitlement to a right. It's, it's something that we've grown up with always having been there as a right. And now we're being kind of hoodwinked and having it taken away after 50 years. So there's a lot of problems with it, but we're a lot worse off without having Roe there. And we really do need to start building other strategies and other ways of protecting these rights at the state level. And I think ultimately at the constitutional level to look at how we can sort of renovate and update our constitution to better recognize the race and gender equities that are at play here. But uh, the only thing I would add is that while, um, you know, if we were writing the opinion, we may well ground it in different uh, language or different protections of the Constitution. The reality is Roe created a fundamental right, which meant it would get, was given the highest level of constitutional protection, similar to free speech and uh, the right to religious liberty, at least for another couple of weeks until the Supreme Court dismantles that, which they started to do today, interestingly. Um, but so it, it it gave women the highest level of protection. And, and more importantly, it was decided 
by a seven to two vote. And I think that's really important to remember because Justice Blackmun used the rationale that would give him the broadest support. Um, and that's an important thing in our constitutional uh, history, uh, that rights as important as these be grounded in a court that, that recognizes them across political barriers and boundaries. Uh, we're not there any longer. Uh, we are now at a point in which five justices, what we call in the book ultra-conservative justices, are willing not only to dismantle uh, Roe and Casey, the, the case I argued in 1992, uh, but uh, even worse, they're willing to give questions so fundamental back to state legislatures, knowing full well the havoc that will wreck in women's lives and the danger that that poses for women. Uh, without much discussion, and, and I think, you know, if the Alito opinion says anything, the draft opinion, it's that they ignore the consequences of uh, taking away a fundamental constitutional right for the first time in history. I mean, one of the things that I want to mention that aligns very well with the work that you've done and the message that you've put out is that we're talking about sort of choices and decision-making around one's bodily integrity and health. And that's about abortion, but it's also about deciding whether to have a C-section or not. Um, it's about deciding whether you're going to have a midwife, a birth at home, what's going to be covered by your insurance or by Medicaid, what's going to be allowed within your state. And the criminalization of healthcare is dangerous for everybody, but particularly when it involves childbearing and pregnancy. And I think it's really, when we look at sort of what happens when you take away the federal constitutional right, we're looking at these laws that allow fetal personhood and, and to sort of consider the fetus or even the pregnancy from the time of, of fertilization to be equivalent to the rights of the pregnant person. And Justice Alito referenced this in his draft opinion, and I think was one of the most frightening parts, is he kept referring to abortion being different because there was an unborn human being at issue. And once you start considering the unborn, so-called unborn human being and the pregnant person's rights equal, it really opens up the door to regulating decision-making during pregnancy about whether you have a cigarette or whether you drink or whether you ride a bike or whether you, you know, how you make those very individual and personal decisions in consultation with the medical professionals of your choosing, not the state's choosing. And I think that that, for me, is sort of another part of this that makes me very concerned that we're going to go even further. Not that I'm minimizing how damaging it would be to take away abortion rights, but when you start talking about allowing states to pass fetal personhood bills, you really do get into kind of a handmaid's tale nightmare scenario around health care. I was going to ask you how close you thought we were to using that uh, that book title as part of our cultural milieu. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that speaks to people. I mean, it's, you know, Margaret Atwood wrote the book. I think, you know, it was one of the first books I read as a women's studies major in college, and it seemed kind of you know, oh no, this is just sort of a knockoff of 1984. And then, you know, fast forward to where we are now. And I think particularly that Justice Thomas at the oral argument in Dobbs was kind of referencing some of that, you know, well, does this mean we can control behavior during pregnancy? And this is a court that wants to go there. I mean, even Justice Amy Coney Barrett minimized what the risks are of pregnancy and the medical risks and the psychological risks and the well-being to one's family. This court is willing to minimize and trivialize all of that in this pursuit of, you know, getting to every, you know, every product of conception should become a, you know, full baby. And I think that really opens up the door to some trampling of our rights. I, I would just add that it's not just abortion and pregnancy, but the framework outlined by uh, Justice Alito in the draft opinion uh, for recognizing constitutional protection uh, when a right is not specifically mentioned in the Constitution, which frankly is everything important. Um, but because the framers were pretty clear that they were using broad language. Why? Because they didn't know what life would bring. Uh, two centuries uh, beyond them. Um, so they use words like freedom and liberty. Well, the freedom is in the declaration, but they use words like liberty and, and uh, equality uh, because they wanted a broad brush. 
uh, and they wanted to give judges the ability to interpret that language uh, based on the circumstances of the day. Uh, but the, uh, the, the important point is Justice Alito has set out a way to take away constitutional protection that will go well beyond abortion and maternity care and may bring uh, the rights to marry, uh, whether that be uh, in a same-sex relationship or in a relationship where it's multiracial. It may affect end-of-life care. Um, the ability to make decisions about uh, how you how you die, uh, it could affect a whole range of uh, healthcare decision making and other activities that aren't specifically enumerated in the Constitution, where there has been a long history of discrimination, uh, and that is frightening in my view uh, because of the breadth of that uh, that formulation. It feels to me that um, the abortion issue is so significant in and of itself and all the implications around women's health and access and decisions about our bodies, specifically about whether or not to carry a pregnancy to term. Yet it feels also in a way like a red herring that is diverting our attention away from these much bigger risks that you're talking about. I mean, having practiced midwifery in an illegal state for 20 years, just the fact of illegality, altered behavior in that women who maybe were moving into a slightly more high-risk zone or complicated zone at home were choosing not to go to the hospital because they were afraid of the treatment they were going to get because they were attempting a home birth. Often it left providers unable to make seamless transports because they were afraid of being criminalized uh, for their activity. And I can only imagine the ramifications for how this might ripple out, for example, for providers or women choosing to do a medication abortion in a state that is illegal because they got medications off the grave market, or they went to another state and then they came home and 72 hours now they're later, they're having a complication. What are we looking at in terms of shifts in our medical care, but also driving behaviors, public behaviors, things that should be guaranteed human rights, things that we should have safe ability to do into more secrecy and shame and even dangerous um, responses. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right in talking about the chill that this is causing on medical providers. Um, you know, I talk in the book about a patient I I represented in the 90s in uh in Louisiana, who had cardiomyopathy, a life-threatening heart condition, became pregnant. Her cardio team would not refer her for an abortion because they said her life was at risk, but it wasn't at a greater than 50% chance of dying. And, you know, she had two young sons who were dependent on her. Um, through the use of private funds and the National Abortion Federation, it was, as you're talking about, we had a, a private ambulance company that brought her to Dallas and she was treated there. Um, her doctors were not in any way opposed to her, but they were, again, feeling this criminal chill. And so part of the, you know, the solutions, I think, and going forward, and Kitty and I really do talk a lot about solutions because we think there's a lot of ways forward, but is in looking at our, you know, predominantly racist criminal justice system and saying this is not the place to enforce healthcare norms. And really, we're looking at um, prosecutors now who are saying that they won't enforce some of these laws. I think we've had about seven prosecutors in Michigan who, who banded together and said that they wouldn't enforce criminal abortions uh, laws if they came to pass. Um, I met with a young woman who decided to run for uh, county attorney in Hennepin County, Minnesota, because of this issue and because she said, you know, this is not the kind of thing that we should be prosecuted for. And so I've become part of a campaign that's sort of a hashtag, not one night, where we're looking to get people on both sides of the abortion debate to say, okay, if we're going to ban abortion, but we're not going to put women in jail, not even for one night for trying to self-induce or for being accused of trying to self-induce if they have a miscarriage. And we really, you know, we can, 
agree to disagree on abortion rights, but that this isn't something where we should be criminalizing and locking women up. And so I think it is up to people to stand up in whatever capacity they can. Um, we do have a majority of this country, you know, over 60% of people responding to polls say that they support the right to an abortion. And so I think there are a lot of ways forward, a lot of solutions to this, at least um, to start building a movement to secure our abortion rights um, at both the state and local and federal level. Um, because it's important. They're fundamental human rights. We've, you know, we've lost this as a sort of issue at the Supreme Court, but that doesn't mean that we can't move forward. And I think Kitty and I always like to talk about that after we've brought people so far down into some of the implications. Um, but the, the book and our message is really meant to be a rallying cry about what everybody can do. I just want to hit pause for one second, not on the recording, but on this something you said, which when I read it in the book, I remember feeling my heart just drop in my chest. And that is in the case where it was decided that they didn't know if the woman's life was greater than 50% at risk. And I just can't emphasize enough to listeners that these rights that we have around pregnancy and safety have nothing to do with what your position is on abortion. This could happen to your sister, to your daughter, to your friend, where she's in this situation. And if we are taking a stance where we're not advocating for access to reproductive care across the board, this can happen to any of our friends, family members. And I just, that that statement, that statistic, that data struck me so poignantly. Mm-hmm. One of the really, as I said, said earlier, one of the things that really struck me in reading the book was how clearly and also accessibly for someone like myself, who's not a political or, or a judicial aficionado, how efficiently and effectively you laid out this last 30 years as a concerted effort to replace and overtake the judicial system with certain kinds of thinking. And one of the things that you, and and this is moving towards solutions, but one of the things that you also mentioned in the book was how Republicans tend to vote at both the state and um, presidential bigger elections, and Democrats tend to not vote local as much, or at least that's how I understood it. And I would say that I have a friend who's a reproductive justice lawyer who said the same thing to me a few years ago. He said to really make change, really make change. We have to get the Democrats, the liberals, the broad thinkers, the people who, whatever their background is, who are pro access to reproductive uh, care, voting at the local level. Can you talk about some of your big, hairy, audacious goals and how we can achieve those and how we can get active in making change on a personal and local level. Sure. Well, let me start with the politics. And I'm sure Julie's going to add a whole bunch of other things. But with the politics, uh, there's really only one solution to changing the law in this area, which is first and foremost, changing all those red states, which let's be clear here, are controlled by Republicans into purple or blue states. And in the purple states, they got to be blue, and the blue states have got to stay blue. Um, This is a partisan message today because our parties have divided on this issue. When I first started working on it, there was such a thing as a pro-choice Republican. No longer. Uh, There used to be an anti-choice Democrat. No longer. I mean, this is really breaks down on party lines. And so you need to get active in electoral politics to take back the power we have lost. And liberals don't like electoral politics. They love policy. They love telling, you know, I, I can I can spend hours talking to all my friends about the vagaries of different types of legislation. But then I say, but you got to be out there making phone calls for candidates and knocking on doors. Oh, I don't like to knock on doors. Well, Door knocking is what wins elections. Making phone calls, writing texts, giving money, having parties. 
that's what wins elections. And that's what we all need to do. And you Not, don't mean metaphorically here. You mean very literally. I mean very, I'm just very emphasizing literally. That. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I live in a purple state in Pennsylvania. Uh, we are, uh, we've got a gubernatorial and a senatorial race this year. We're probably the most watched races in the country. Uh, will be decided by somewhere between two and four points. What does that mean? That means every precinct is a couple of votes. And if you can influence those couple of votes where you live and in areas around uh, where we need to, to increase that, that's really critical to not only making a difference for whether abortion is legal in the state, but whether or not Congress can take action. And I think that's the bottom line. This is about power. Our opponents understand that. They've been after it for years. They've been voting on it for years. And we need to do the same. There is an election twice every year, not just once, twice every year, a primary and a general election every single year, not just presidential years. And state legislative offices, uh, secretaries of state, uh, local council races, all of those make a huge difference and we need to be out there working, sending all people, uh, pro-choice people into political office and keeping them there. So granularly, let's say somebody listens to both of you and they're just like, I'm ready. I need to take action. I want to get involved in electoral politics, even just to support candidates. What can people do right now well, today? Well, they've well, done the first step if they're listening to you. I mean, I think that is part of it is just educating yourself, informing yourself. You know? and, and read I, the book, everybody. I mean, seriously, this book is very eye-opening. It's a great read. I learned much more about my government that I should have known that I didn't, much more about the judicial system. It's really a wonderful read. It's not dense. It's easy to go through. So please get a copy of it and well, thank you. I, the next the, step you do. You used the word accessible before, and that made my heart flutter about the book because we do think it's very important for people to be educated, be informed, and, and be activated. And so, you know, as Kitty said, there are a lot of local races. I hate standing on the street and talking to strangers. I did it last Saturday for a local assembly woman uh, race uh, in New York City. And uh, it was actually kind of fun and not so bad. I always say bring a friend. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of other ways to get involved in races, both locally, as well as um, there are some key races, obviously, that will affect uh, reproductive rights as well. There's uh, attorney general candidate in Texas, Rochelle Garza, who has been very supportive of abortion rights. And that's a key state um, for so many people, as well as a symbolic state in our country. Um, and I think also, if we look at what Stacey Abrams has been doing, you know, and, and her team for years, it shows us how people don't vote for very good reasons sometimes. And, you know, either they don't believe that voting matters, or they literally can't access the polls, either because they've been knocked off the polls, or because we just don't have enough access to the polls. And so, we need to support voting access and voting rights in this country as an ongoing issue. And I don't feel as strongly that it's a red and blue issue as Kitty does. I feel that, you know, it's a, you know, we don't have to turn every red state blue, but we have to turn every red state at least trying to support abortion rights because we've been giving a hall pass to Republicans for way too long and that we haven't been voting and prioritizing this issue the way we should. And I do think that speaking to people individually, I saw this happen in Ireland, you know, around the kitchen table, around, you know, the diner, wherever you are having those one-on-one -on -one conversations and talking about why abortion is important to me. What does it mean to me to live in a country that's going to criminalize women's health care, that's going to take away our basic human rights, that's going to force continuation of pregnancy or not provide the best possible health care for somebody who's pregnant? Um, whether they're going to carry that pregnancy to term or not, or whether they run into complications along the road, or how they want to deliver that pregnancy, or whether they want to take contraception to prevent pregnancy and what type of contraception. So I think when we start talking about abortion as part of reproductive freedom and part of our fundamental rights, we can reach people who otherwise are tuning out this conversation as a bipartisan political fight at the Supreme Court. And, you know, there are people who will you know, maybe not vote for abortion rights, but they'll lend you money to get to the clinic or they'll give you a ride or they'll give you a cup of tea when you come home. 
we need to change that and say, this is something that just isn't a personal decision. It's something where we as a country and as a community of women and our allies need to stand up more. And that's where I get sort of my optimism that we will move forward on this issue. I think it's too important to too many of us to let us be robbed of it. I think it's going to get a lot harder for a lot of people before it gets better overall. I think we're going to lose women. I think you know we've seen that happen internationally, these tragic cases. I don't want that to happen. I want us to get ahead of it and to really be the kind of society and country that I think we are at heart. It feels too that this is sort of like abortion is the is the head of a comet, but the tail also includes a whole lot of other rights that even for folks who may not support abortion for whatever reason, know somebody who's gay or trans or gay and married and want to support those people. And I think we forget, again, for me as a women's health physician, the abortion piece and the safety and the access is so upfront and center. But I think that as a culture, people are so focused on that one piece and don't realize that that is the foot opening the door to threatening all of these other rights that we assume are secure as well. And, and many people that we know and love. Right. And them. what I would say is that's that's true in the courts, but it's also true in the legislature. So when you elect somebody who is pro-choice and will support the right to choose abortion, you're probably also electing somebody who's going to be for common sense gun control and who might be for uh, greater access to uh, child care or who might be, uh, you know, for reducing the high cost of drugs. All kinds of issues do turn on on kind of the philosophies of legislators. And I think the most important thing is for us to understand that the only way we win going forward is to establish political power among those who believe as we do. And when we cede that ground to our opponents, I don't know if any of you have had a chance to look at the uh, Republican Party platform in Texas that was passed a couple of days ago. But it's extraordinary for the breadth of its hatred against all things uh, and against all people. And I think when we cede control of legislatures to people who believe that none of us are, are equal to them, that their life is more important than the rest of ours, uh, when their decision-making ought to trump all of our, ours as well, then I think uh, we're in really, uh, as my my kids are likely to say, my, my grandkids, we're in deep doo-doo. Uh, and we need to uh, make sure that we make change. And to do that means getting politically active. You, Especially when uh, those people think that they're going to tell us how to parent, how to raise our kids, whether those kids are going to be LGBTQ plus or not, and how we're going to talk to them about those issues. It's really there's a certain arrogance in being able to dictate to the legislative body. And I think we need to tell those politicians to sit back down. So you talk about um, engaging in loud, lively, and creative protests. Um, as we tell people to sit back down, what is the role of protests and where do you find them to be most effectively held? I know you talk about campuses, clinics, pharmacies, talk about the role of protests and how folks can organize or be involved in protests. So I think of protests being one avenue for activating uh, people who agree with us um, and for uh, sending a message to politicians that we care about this issue and will vote on this issue. But a protest, you know, and it's a great way to get press and media about the question. The, the more out, outlandish, the more outrageous, the better in terms of getting media. I, I used to say the, the, you know, when I worked as a journalist, if there was conflict, I'd be there, right? It's uh, you want, it, that's what protest can do. Uh, and it can build a movement for change. Is it enough? No. Because the protest also has to have an aim of changing the power balance in this country. So for me, protest is goes hand in hand with political action. And if you don't go take that extra step and do the political action, the protest is meaningless. Um, and similarly, protest then can also be a way to activate help for the women in need. And that's the other thing that's so critical is we need to get abortion funds uh, with enough resources to help women in states that they can't obtain care. I attended um, our local uh, group of the Reproductive Health Access Group, um, which is 
provide physician providers and other healthcare providers. And we talked about um, creating a, a national couch surfing movement for women who are going to other states to be able to to stay. And it's it's already happening. When we are hearing of women opening their homes, people opening their homes in um, blue states, states where abortion rights are protected. Uh, I know you, Julie, mentioned earlier simple things like providing a cup of tea, but providing transportation, um, childcare, all the things that are uh, obstacles to people getting uh, services, or if you can't provide the services, but you can provide financial resources, that's great too. I think, look, I mean, the message that Kitty and I always say and that our book says is that everybody can do something and you have to do something that fits. So if it's marching is your thing, if it's politics is your thing, if it's, you know, talking to your human resources department at your corporation and saying, you know, where are we putting our philanthropic dollars as a company? What is our policy for leave and for our insurance coverage of abortion? Um, medical providers like yourself have such an important and authoritative voice in raising the kinds of issues about, you know, there isn't this bright line between a life-saving and a health-saving abortion. Um, I did an event in Los Angeles and somebody from the Orly Nail Polish Company was there and they designed a red nail polish uh, for me that's called You Don't Control Me. And we're, oh, the proceeds are going to the LA-based uh, Women's Reproductive Rights Access Project Abortion Fund. I never would have thought of that. There are so many different creative ideas coming out. And I'm, you know, I think if everybody kind of puts on their abortion rights goggles and looks to see whether they can provide resources or creativity. Um, I was involved with an artist who did some artwork around reproductive freedom and rights and auctioned it off to benefit a um, abortion fund in the South. So we're seeing a great outpouring. We're seeing that people care and they want to do something and, and finding what fits um, is part of it because we're in this for the long haul and we really need everybody. Okay. I have one more question for each of you. If later today you were to meet your younger self in a cafe or at a rally or the setting of your choice, what's one bit of life's wisdom or guidance you would give her? Assuming she asked, or you just told it. I would just say lighten up. <laughs> so, Love it. But I don't know if that's political enough, but I oh, think please. Yes, sort of it is. It's, that's important. What's coming now. So. Yeah. No, and we have to take care of ourselves in the midst of all of this, right? Burnout is another phenomenon facing women and facing practitioners, and especially since the pandemic. So lightening up is good if it helps us go for the long haul. You got to have a sense of humor, too. Exactly. And I would uh, echo the words of Joan Baez, which is the best antidote to despair, which we have too much of right now. Uh, is action. I didn't do it early enough. I think it's important that we all get get active and do something. And um, remember that organizing is fun. You can make some friends along the way. Uh, you can pretend uh, you're making a difference in the world and in many instances actually make a difference in the world. Um, and more than anything, uh, feel purpose uh, in life. We need Kitty. more good music to go with that, Kitty. We need like more Joan Baez and other like I was gonna say, this songs. Is, this, Aviva could just. I think we need a bit of Dixie. We might need a bit of Dixie Chicks Dixie. for that one. I think exactly. <laughs> Although I think they're not called that anymore. They've changed their name because of all that they so went the through. chicks now. I think the chicks. Yeah, we need the chicks for that. <laughs> Kitty and Julie, thank you again for being you and doing what you do, the work you do for women and for all of us, all people for being here today. And everybody, please support this amazing movement by getting educated. This book has been transformative for me. Uh, I think it will be for you as well. And Julie and Kitty, we look forward to following you and hopefully being nearby, making sea changes in guaranteeing access to reproductive rights together. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, Aviva. Lovely. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, 
you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.